I'm Duncan McNichol. And I'm Dominic Norberg. And this is an episode of Not Exactly Rocket Science. Basically, uh, I've never really liked the phrase Not Exactly Rocket Science. Because for a while now, I've known roughly how rocket science works, being um, a bit of a physicist as well as having been a chemistry teacher. And rocket science, not that difficult, I think. It's not exactly brain surgery, as we also say. I don't know, if, do, do you have the phrase in, in German, not exactly rocket science? Well, I think the closest that we've got is it's not exactly quantum physics or okay. not exactly nuclear physics. Nuclear physics. Yeah. Again, nuclear physics, I mean... It, it has involved maths, but it's not fantastically difficult to understand, um, which is relevant to us because we probably could understand these things with relative ease. Whereas we work at the Queen's Medical Research Institute, which is, as the name suggests, a medical research institute. Very medical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of people working in this building who present their findings, PhD students and the like. Um, and we go along to these presentations and we generally find them quite difficult to follow. Um, it's not exactly rocket science. It's quite a bit more difficult for us. Um, certainly that's my experience of it. Is, um, yeah. yeah, which is exactly the point that we sit in these so-called research in progress presentations, the RIPs. And yeah, well, I get what they're talking about. Yeah, we do I our think. best. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, we don't have the background. And so we thought it would be interesting to make a podcast where we um, interviewed some of these people um, about what they do on the basis that, frankly, if we can understand this properly, you can understand this properly. Um, so, yeah, this is that podcast. Yeah. And uh, for completeness sake, my background is in electrical engineering and computer science. We should probably now introduce our guest who this episode is uh, Margaret Heck. But we should probably just let her introduce herself. So my name is Margaret Heck. Um, I'm a professor of cell biology and genetics at the University of Edinburgh. I'm currently working in the Queen's Medical Research Institute uh, based in the Centre for Cardiovascular Science, but consider myself very much a basic biologist where we use cell biology and genetics as tools to investigate problems of interest. Okay. Do you know what mitosis is? Mitosis is the process of cell division, says Duncan, drawing on his high school biology. Well, that's pretty good. I guess you learned well in high school. Hopefully. (laughs) It doesn't go much beyond high school, though. Now I know you do something to do with mitosis. That process has been vaguely understood for quite a while. So you're obviously not working on the basics of it. No, we're not working on the basics. The basics have been described, but more molecules identified all the time that are playing a role in this process. So there are a number of things that are going on. There are things that are happening with the nucleus, and and there are things that are happening in the cell in terms of setting up a bipolar spindle that will segregate the chromosomes, and that's made of microtubules. Okay, stop. So Margaret just used a bunch of big words about mitosis, and we needed some clarification. Uh, So we got our friend Clara to come and talk to us. I want to talk about mitosis, but I have to say what happens just before mitosis because it's just as important so uh, just before a cell divides it actually duplicates all its dna so when we think of a chromosome we see like this little x shaped thing but actually what we have in our cells is like a half of that so like the left half for example okay and just before mitosis so just before the cell is ready to divide and there's a process called replication where this half of an x makes a new half that's exactly the same okay and it becomes a full 
X, X chromosome. Um, but not an X chromosome. Not an X chromosome. <laughs> no. Okay. So the X chromosome does do that, but all the others do that. And then you've got mitosis, which is this whole process where this actual X chromosome, well, all of them will separate into the two halves again. Okay. So it made a new half so that it can split in two and those two halves can each go to a new cell. Right. So that each new cell has the same exact chromosomes same. that the starting cell had. Yeah. So basically we have um, prophase, the chromosomes condense so that they become what we think of as chromosomes and yeah. they have these two identical halves. You've got the spindle that starts to form and it's starting to attach to the chromosomes. Okay. Um, and so metaphase is when um, the sister chromatids like they're attached by the microtubules already. Yeah. And so by this pulling action, they get like lined up and a phase where they're getting split apart. And so you can see these, um, they're now half chromosomes. So they're little chromatids basically being pulled to either end of the cell. Um, and the cell starts to stretch to become two cells. And in telophase, basically the cell's almost ready to be two cells. Okay. And you start to get like a nucleus that forms around each new half. Okay. When do they the decondense again? Um, that's in telophase. In telophase. That's when they start to decondense. So they just okay. become like a bunch, okay. like a tangled bunch again. Well, I feel like I understand a bit better. Back to our conversation. But our interest, our interest has largely been on the chromosomes. Okay. And so what I wanted to understand was, can we find novel components that are important for chromosome architecture. How do you go from that interphase nucleus into a metaphase cell where the chromosomes are fully condensed? And in length, the chromosomes are condensed relative to the length of DNA, about 10,000 fold. So it's a big structural compaction. Right. And so how do you do that? I mean, you probably know well enough already as a non-biologist that DNA is very negatively charged. I should know that because I'm a chemist, but I don't know that because I never think about things. <laughs> and, and, and I, I kind of, my attention goes up when I hear the word charge because my background's in electrical engineering. Oh, that's pretty much as far as it so goes. So I roped you both in already. <laughs> Here we are. But so DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, is a very acidic molecule. And you can't really package that because it would just repel itself. So it's bound to a lot of very positively charged proteins. And that's the, the first level of chromosome condensation or okay. compaction. And that makes these things called nucleosomes. But there's a lot more that happens on top of that to compact the DNA to make a metaphase chromosome. And so I did my PhD work at Johns Hopkins University and was working actually on a protein called topoisomerase 2 which is an enzyme, as the name might suggest, cuts DNA and it allows it to swivel around if it's got supercoils in it to relax supercoils. Okay. Supercoils? Supercoils. Co so coils of coils? Coils of coils. So DNA is a double helix, right? Okay. So, of course, if, so if you, you twist that, up, you coil it up. It's like, like if you had a, a phone, well, one of those old-fashioned phone, phone cables. Oh, right? I love those phone to cables. our younger heroes, there used to be a time <laughs> when telephones had cables, yes. <laughs> Not charging cables as Not well. charging cables. <laughs> Permanently Actually, attached. physically connecting <laughs> what you talk with and what uh, is doing the work. Anyway, so... Um, so DNA can do lots of different things, and it needs enzymes to be able to to put it back in place so that the cell is happy with it. You can't just make all these supercoils if you twist up the DNA and make these things. You know, they have to be controlled properly. Anyway, so one of those proteins is topoisomerase 2, and that's what I worked on as a PhD student. 
I did a lot of cell biology work on that, showed how it was important for chromosome structure and how it was regulated during different differentiation systems, for example, that you could manipulate in the lab. I was interested then as a postdoc to still focus on chromosomes, but to take a completely different approach, and that was a genetic approach. And so that's when I first started to work with Drosophila, Drosophila melanogaster, which is a the common fruit fly. fly, and has been worked on also as a model organism now for more than 100 years. Why? Well, that's that's a good question. Why would you work on the fruit fly? Well, if you think about genetics and the study of heredity, what name comes to mind? Something with M. Uh, Mendel. Mendel, Mendel. that's it. And what did he work on? Peas. Yes. Oh, we are on fire. Absolutely. I thought we knew nothing about biology, and we are on top you, of You've it. already got some of the most important things. So Gregor Mendel, yes, was a monk, Czech monk, who worked on pea plants to study heredity. And this is in the late 1800s. Yeah. That work then um, sort of uh, wasn't continued, I believe, to a great extent. But Thomas Hunt Morgan decided that he did want to pursue the analysis of of how chromosomes were inherited, and thought to, that the fruit fly might be a good system. So in the early 1900s, the fruit fly... It sounds like a bit of a jump, doesn't it? From from peas to flies? Well, I think he probably thought it was going to be a little more interesting than peas. But that's just my personal opinion. Fair enough. Whether that's I might have gone with seahorses if I was just <laughs> going for interesting. Well, but you have to be able to propagate it in the lab, don't you? And so, yeah, fair enough. Uh, the advantage, probably, yeah, yeah of, <clears throat> of fruit flies is that you can propagate propagate them in the lab, or in your right? kitchen, or your kitchen, yeah, or with wherever. Just just by just buying bananas, leave some avocados. bananas out. But so, so Thomas Hunt Morgan, in addition to studying lots of other things like regeneration then thought he'd turn his hand to to looking at chromosome inheritance. So he studied the fruit fly, and it took about three years before they found the first mutation. Okay. And that was called white because... They went white? Well, the eyes. The eyes went white. white. So the eyes in a normal fly are red, like brick red. Okay. And this particular mutation, the first one that they found, was called white because the eyes are white. And then they could use that to trace... So they spent three years breeding flies with no results at all. And then just one of them was born with white eyes. Yes. And that's that's very similar to the quote that Thomas Hunt Morgan actually has himself for <laughs> all these years I've spent and all all I've got is this. But now for more than a hundred years people have worked on fruit flies and there are many more genetic tools. So obviously that was that was the start of it. How could you use an, an animal system mm. to look at uh, gene inheritance, chromosome inheritance, and that being the first marker allowed you to do similar things to what Gregor Mendel was doing okay. in the pea yeah. plant. But move up about, uh, I don't know, 60, 70 uh, years, a bit more than that. And there are lots of molecular tools that we can use now with the fly. Okay. And so I decided because there was a very good um, genetic history to the fly and banks of mutations, that this would be a good system to use to look for mutations that might affect how chromosomes are formed. When you say shaped. banks of mutations, it's like you you go online and buy flies with, like you have a catalogue of, okay, these are really smelly or these have green wings and stuff like that. Yes. 
pretty Pre- much. Perhaps not as exciting as those phenotypes <laughs> might be, but um, we have curly wings. Uh, we have ones that can't smell, for example. But yes, yeah, so there's smell? yeah. How can olfactory. you tell? Oh, I guess you just give them a smell they don't like. Well, or you or... put them on something that you know they do like, and do do, do ah, they okay. respond or not? Do they wow. do they move towards these sorts of scents? It's not exactly X Men, so... is it? Do any of the flies produce massive metal claws from their hands? <laughs> <laughs> well, no. No, but the males do have what what are called sex combs on the four legs that do kind of look like that. Wow, like slivering, like right around here. So (laughs) (laughs) anyway, you check the Bloomington Stock Center to see what they might have. Obviously, their publications not about everything, Um, but you can go to the 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 Stock Center. You can even search um, by region of the genome. Say you know where your gene is, okay. but nothing's been done on it. You can stock, um, check the stock center to see if there are any sort of mutations that are mapped by, you know, where that gene is of interest or something and see whether it's affecting your gene. And if it's a mutant, then you can study it. That's pretty cool. Obviously. So, so it's very cool. It's very cool. And that has so far been supported by the National Institutes of Health and basically pay for the shipping of the flies. It's very the, cheap. Like, and then they want FedEx the flies to you? Uh, it's usually not FedEx. It's wow. <laughs> just <laughs> just comes in the regular. It post. It comes in the regular post, and sometimes in the winter that can be a problem. Is that like a box of flies? It's a box of flies. Wow. It's a box of flies. So you know you may get uh, a dozen stocks at a time. You may get a couple hundred stocks at a time. I get a box, and it's full of mirrors and lenses. That's, That's quite cool. a different box. That's probably FedExed. So you get your flies in the post. So we get our flies in the post, or we can make mutations ourselves. Then we can do that genetically. A mutation can be caused by a number of things. It can be caused by a chemical mutagen, which maybe just changes one base in the DNA sequence, and that's why it's very hard to find. Or a mutant allele can be because a piece of DNA has jumped in there, or there's been some rearrangement of the DNA after irradiation or something. So you can make mutations or mutant alleles in many different ways. And it's easier to identify what the gene is if there's a big chunk of DNA next to it. Right. And so that's what we did. We generated another mutant allele and a chunk of DNA next to it. And then we could pull out the DNA itself for that gene that was giving rise when it was disrupted to these mutant chromosomes. Okay. Okay. So the original fly mutation we were interested in had chromosomes that didn't look as nice as what you saw in that video. Right. Okay. They condense, but they're fuzzy. They don't look very nice. So we thought perhaps... Whatever's going on there tells us something about what's important for chromosome biology. What we actually found is that it makes an enzyme called a protease, okay. and specifically a metalloprotease. And these are enzymes that cut apart other proteins. So once we had that DNA transposon allele, and we could clone the DNA, identify the DNA next to the transposon, and then we could see you know, what that sequence encoded, mm-hmm. that looked like a, a metalloprotease. So they thought, ah, this could have enzymatic activity. Okay. All right. So that was really exciting because, well, there are a couple of important things, one that I didn't even tell you yet. The original um, mutant allele and the one that we made, um, if they're homozygous, if there are two copies of the mutant gene, the animal is dead. Okay. So in its simplest interpretation, what does that tell you? You definitely need that protein. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Thank you. And that's what I say in my seminars. Yes. Yeah, so the simplest interpretation 
of a lethal phenotype. Mm-hmm. If, is, if, is that is, that gene is essential for life? Okay. Okay. So, so, so it's got to be doing something. So you'd important. still get larva with um, with those genes, but they they'd be dead. So, yes. So, they, so, they, so you an- analyzed dead offspring. Well, we, before they die. So how we quick, analyze how, them before they die. How quickly did they die? Then? Well, so these particular mutations die. Uh, oddly enough, you knew that in, in the larval stage, the late larval stage. Um, so they don't make adults. So you can tell that right away genetically when you're looking at the at the flies, whether the ones that are homozygous for your particular mutation are there or not. And if they're not there, then they're obviously dying sometime before mm-hmm. adulthood. And so we studied um, the phenotypes in larvae because the larvae get to about the stage where they'll pupate and then they'll die. And they'll die because they don't have the tissues to make the adult. And so, those tissues need mitosis. So pupae is when they change from being little wriggly things into being actual flies. Well, that's metamorphosis. Okay. Pupation is basically making the um, the pupil case kind of like the chrysalis. Right. That a butter that a caterpillar makes to, before it becomes a my, butterfly. My brain works entirely by analogy. So for me, I'm just trying to work out. I would metamorphosis for me is is being a teenager, right? <laughs> That's <laughs> yes, I would stage agree. Stage between being a child and being an adult, which are clearly it's definitely a larval stage, different beasts, right? <laughs> it's definitely um, a larval stage. So this is right at the beginning of of being going into before you go into being a teenager, even. Um. Well, I guess it's it's not quite as analogous as that. I mean, the fly life cycle starts by there's an egg that's laid. Okay. It's a large egg. It's about a half millimeter in length. Biologists have a different idea about large, but yep. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And so embryogenesis, everything that happens to make the embryo and the first stage of larva oh. happens in 24 hours within that egg. Okay. Okay. And then the first stage larva hatches out of that egg. Right. And then it undergoes two more molts. Okay. So there are actually three larval stages. and they're punctuated by this molting process. So they shed the skin and make the next stage as they get bigger yep. and bigger. And then that third instar, which is what the stage is called, the third instar larva, will then undergo the process of pupation, making this pupil case. And then the metamorphosis. Like a cocoon making, around It's it. kind of like a cocoon. It's, it's like a cocoon. But, I mean, have you seen a chrysalis? There's usually some great videos you can find about the caterpillars, again, making this chrysalis, this pupil case that the butterfly he closes out of is the terminology. He closes. He closes. That's a great Bi- word. Biologies, biologists like their words. He close. I'm going to try and work out a way to use a close in a sentence, just as a normal English word. That's a great idea. Um, Do crisps kind of eclose from the bag? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd say eclosion is more of an active process. I'm not sure that. Right. Crisps, okay. unless so, those are X Men crisps that I haven't come across either. So, say I was camping, could I close from my sleeping bag yes. when I wake up in the morning? Yes, you could. Yes, okay. yes. I think that's a that's a good way to that's, put it. That's as good a reason as any to go camping. Indeed, indeed. But would you close as something different from when you went? Well, as I mean, it could be. If you'd ever see me when, first thing when I wake up in the morning, then yes, very different animal. Yeah. Then, Metamorphosis then, yeah. in the other direction. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> retro, so. <laughs> retro metamorphosis. 
Um, where where the hell were we? So um, we've got this that's, protease. That's where they the essential protease. It's killing them in the larval stage. If it's if it's not if present, it's, yeah. If it's not if, present, if, they're dying in the larval stage, and they're dying in the larval stage because they they have this process of cell division that has to occur normally. Yeah. And if the cell division is screwed up, then they can't make the the tissues that they need to make the adult. So that's why they die as larvae. So they don't need it just to grow. No. So they can grow fine, but when they yes. try and turn into a fly, it all goes wrong. It all die. goes wrong because they don't have the pockets of tissues that, that make the adult okay. structures. But we found out much more about this. So, again, I want to stress that the, one of the most important things that is that it's an essential gene. Right. And it was novel. Nobody else knew anything. We discovered this gene. Nobody else is still working on it. And we call it Invadolysin. Okay. That's perhaps a subject for another podcast. <laughs> why we call it that and all that but you know. i'm i'm really interested in how naming of novel things works uh, so i know a bit about how naming of new elements works that happens very very rarely mm. um it's happened what 118 times so far mm. and a lot of that happened before they had rules but um but yeah i'm quite interested like just do you if you discover a new thing do you just get naming you get rights? to name it you yeah. get to, and you yeah. get to call it whatever you want or yeah, pretty much. I mean, as long as it's not offensive, but but usually, you know, that mutant phenotype name was put on before any sort of molecular um, function was ascribed, perhaps to that gene. Okay. In our case, because we had the sequence, so the first mutant phenotype was called lethal three nine fourteen. Well, that's not Snappy. very interesting. Snappy yeah. rolls, rolls, rolls off the tongue. Off the tongue yeah. <laughs> For me, it does. I've said it a thousand times, but. But we decided to call it Invader Lysin. Lysin first because that's what's used on proteases. Okay. As a sort of um, defining um, word or, or part of word. And Invado because when we were doing localization studies for where this protease was, we thought it was localizing to little structures called Invadopodia. Okay. So that's how we put together Invader Lysin. Now, Invadopodia um, are little like fingers that cells extend that are full of proteases to degrade the matrix around them so that they can move. Okay. Um, that's awesome. So that's also very cool. Cells do lots of really cool things. But then we actually discovered that we weren't looking at Invadopodia. The protease was actually on something else in the cell called lipid droplets. Which makes the name just a bit random. Well, a little bit, but we figured <laughs> it's, it's a good be, name, though. It's only going to be more confusing if we change the name. Well, exactly. So we don't change the name, and I mean, and it's still important for cell migration. So in that case, the invader is okay. <laughs> it's um, I, I quite like it when a name tells you a bit about how something, yeah, was yeah. discovered as well, because you know it's it was based on something that turned out to not be true, but looked like it was, yeah, and now forever regardless of how well known it becomes for the thing that it actually does, people will be able to tell that it I hope looks so. like it was doing it's something like, yeah, else. Yeah. The really exciting thing where this work has taken us now is to discover um, that this protease is found in human serum, in all of our serum. What serum? Oh, well, <laughs> blood. Oh, okay. What does blood have in it? Uh, red blood cells, white blood cells. Uh-huh. Platelets? Uh-huh water yes so it's it's not just cells yeah right there's a fluid compartment yeah as well and that's the serum okay so um so like blood with all the bits taken out with all the bits taken out 
So, but if you do that, the serum, the serum has this protease. So we obviously are very interested if we can find out what is it doing in human serum. Right. Because you'd expect it to be in cells doing its job. Well, there's a form in cells as well. So the different forms. So that that's okay. But the but the main question being that since it's an essential gene, it's probably doing something, well, interesting at least and probably important as well. Um, and I think that's where the conservation um, of biological sequences is so important. And if we can use the fly as a system to identify genes that haven't been studied in other systems, identify them from a mutant phenotype, then it's very powerful evidence already that this is doing something important or something interesting. Is the gene exactly the same between the fly and... Very, very similar. Very similar. Which isn't always the case, as in like with the same phenotypical influence of of a gene, they might look very different in, in, in different organisms. It can, except that the conservation is, I think, more striking than you might anticipate in, right. in many cases. And even though we don't think we look like flies, you know. Thank you. <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> um, you know, the, the fact that three quarters of human disease genes have counterparts in the fly, wow. at least three quarters so far identified, you can do a lot of very straightforward biology in a simple system that doesn't cost a lot. And and the other reason is, you know, it only takes 10 days to get another generation of flies. Wow. That's kind of impressive and kind of disgusting. And I can't... (laughs) You can't decide which? Yeah. (laughs) 10 days. 10 days. Wow. 10 days from, from laying an egg to a new adult. So... Who is ready to mate in about 10 hours after that. <laughs> so when you, when you send flies through the post, the flies that turn up aren't necessarily the flies that were put in the box. Or Quite they? possibly. It depends on how long it takes. Wow. It could, it could, if, if they get held up somewhere on the way, um, maybe that, yeah, there is a new generation coming out already. That but is... they're sent, obviously, with food. You can't send yeah. them without food. They would die. But, but no one goes through the effort of separating the males and the females before sending them out. Um, can do. It's not frequently done. But Sounds it's, like it's a difficult process. No, it's very easy to Is tell it? males from females. But to separate them? Well, that's very easy too. How do you think you do genetic crosses? You just don't let it happen randomly. No, what you do is you anesthetize them with CO2. It used to be ether was used, but... That um, was too much fun. That was... <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying oh, to think of a delicate way here. to ask this. Are you looking at their boy and girl parts? Is that how you tell them um, apart? Uh, well, you could, but <laughs> or that's is it like lions, like where you can just be like, well, that one's got a giant mane, so I don't need to look at It's probably more similar than okay. to lions. Actually, what you, <clears throat> what you have is that the females are larger and they have sort of a abdomen that then goes to a point where the males are slightly shorter and the la- and it's sort of a rounded abdomen and the last two segments are darkly pigmented. Okay. And they so have their flyverine claws. Absolutely. You were paying Flyverine. attention. Yes. yes. Good shout. Mm. They have their sex combs. <laughs> <laughs> where are you going with this in the future? Because oh, obviously, obviously you're not you're not only interested in flies. Right. Like it sounds like when you say you go back and forth between flies and humans and so on, um, I assume this is this kind of targeted towards something to do with humans and yes, that's health, right. health research. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I don't work on flies just because I love flies. 
I work on them because I think they're a great system. And the fact that they've allowed us to identify a novel enzyme that is present in human serum, obviously one of the things that we want, well, there are a couple of things that we really want to be able to understand. So if it's an enzyme, it's probably cutting apart substrates. So what are some of the substrates? That's hopefully something that we can address and because that should tell you something about the function that it has in normal physiology or in pathophysiologies. And so then that leads to whether this particular protein might serve as a biomarker for some disease states, whether the levels are changed or different forms are present. And so that's something we're able to take advantage of collaborations here in um, the College of Medicine at the university to, to start to investigate. And, we're, and we're, we're starting to do that now to look at various human conditions and see whether Invader-Lysin is affected. So starting with the fly, using the genetics of the fly to find other proteins that might interact, but also really moving it into human biology and hopefully finding something that is important about um, the human state. Okay, so the time has come for me to see if I've understood what Margaret was talking about. Here goes. As far as I can tell, you discovered in flies a protein that cuts up other proteins. And the reason that you think it's important is because it turns up in people, in, in their cells, and also in the bits of their body that aren't cells. And if you don't have it at all, you die. Yes. So it must be doing something. Yes. And, and, and we can see that in the mouse as well. Okay. Well, that was an interesting uh, conversation. Um, I think I kind of got to grips with what Margaret does. I don't know about you. Yeah, definitely. Um, I certainly enjoyed having a conversation with Margaret. She's, uh, she's a good laugh, that one. Um, but yeah, so um, I think all that remains is to say thanks very much to Margaret. Um, and yeah, we'll see you again next time. I hope you enjoyed as much as we did. I hope you understood as much as we did or possibly even a bit more. Hopefully. Hopefully. And so stay tuned. And and this podcast will be a closing from your podcast player soon. In Again three, soon. Two, one. Boop. <laughs> that might be the best thing ever. <laughs>